Well, good morning, everyone. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 17. Whenever anybody asks what I do for a living, meaning a job, pay the bills, I always say I'm an IT specialist or a system admin, but I wear a ton of different hats at work. That One of the things I have always loved about... Um, I've been doing this now for 27, I think I'm going on 28 years here in April, same company. And one of the things I love about it is I get to wear a ton of different hats. I do everything from what I call break fix, which is just somebody calling on the phone to say, hey, I can't print this, or I'm having trouble with this, or my PC's doing this or doing that, or there's yellow smoke coming out of it, can you come put the smoke back in? And um, so I do everything from that all the way to large projects, moving offices, everything from how it's laid out to how it functions to where people sit, um, to planning the move getting all the movers there, doing all the wiring, all that kind of stuff, um, to even training. I've worked with a lot of realtors and a lot of um, salespeople, and so I do sales support, I do videos, I do training sessions. And one of the things that I've learned over the years whenever I do training, for instance, we had a brand new, um, you know, anybody know what Adobe Adobe Reader is? When you open up a PDF document on your computer, you have to have something to read that. And um, so there's all kinds of different products that you can buy that are a lot cheaper than some of the Adobe products, and we use one at work. So when we rolled that out company-wide, my responsibility was to um, help people figure out how to use it, how to transition our users over, how to help them from having their heads explode because they don't like change. And I've learned over the years with as much training as I've had to do that you have to be sort of progressive in it. Now, I don't mean progressive in the sense that you might think of when it comes to politics or other things. I mean progressive in that you can't just throw up on them everything you need to know and drop it on their lap because it completely overwhelms them. And so you have to kind of reveal it a little bit at a time. Let them get used to one function and then let them get used to the next function. Let them, you know, that way they're not overwhelmed. Plus you do it in a way that makes them start looking forward to what's coming next. And the thing that I've always been impressed with with the scriptures is that's kind of the way God is. We have a book here that is actually 66 different books and letters. And God's plan of redemption, the way that God works, what he wants us to know about himself, is something that he gradually, progressively revealed over time. Now, I don't know that it was because people wouldn't get overwhelmed, but that's just the way God is. He did it over time, sort of progressively. And that includes things like what we're going to look at this morning, this covenant with Abraham. God didn't reveal everything about the covenant with Abraham all in the very beginning when he was back in Ur. There was a progressive nature to it, and it takes place over a number of chapters. And so we're going to look at, in some respects, the culmination of that, the final confirmation of God's covenant with Abraham. We're going to break the text down today, chapter 17, into five different sections. Let me just tell you what we're going to do with that. The first six verses... We're going to look at the covenant being established with some conditions. The covenant then was also an everlasting covenant. That's going to be verses 7 and 8. That's the second part. The covenant was everlasting. The third part is going to be the covenant was confirmed with a perpetual sign, something that God expected Abraham to repeat, a sign, a remembrance of the covenant. That's going to be verses 9 through 14. The fourth part is the covenant was dependent on the supernatural and sovereign work of of God. That's verses 15 through 22. And then lastly, the covenant was responded to by Abraham in faith. And that's going to be the final 
few verses, verses 27, or 23 through 27. So keep that in mind as we go through this. But one of the remarkable natures of God's covenant with Abraham is how it reflects something else that's ultimately directly related to us, and that's the new covenant. One of the things that I love about the Old Testament is that it reflects, it shows us examples, it gives us foreshadowing of what we ultimately come to see in the New Testament. We were told that uh, by Paul that the Old Testament is a tutor to lead us to Christ. Those churches that focus primarily and almost only exclusively on the New Testament are missing two-thirds of God's Word and are missing a huge chunk. In fact, it was rather interesting. Um, I, I'm not a real big fan. I mean, we, I, I've been reading quite a bit of the... I use a New American Standard here, but I've really kind of grown rather fond of the newest iteration of this New American Standard, which is released by Master Seminary. It's sort of an updated version called the Legacy Standard Version. I, I really like it. It doesn't say anything new. They just do some things like, instead of translating Yahweh as Lord in the Old Testament, they translate it as Yahweh. I kind of like that. I kind of appreciate that. So there's some neat things about it, but what I, what I kind of hate is when you have 18 different versions of that same Bible. You know, you got to do them in all different colors, and you got to do all different this and that. And I don't mind things like a large print edition or some other things, but it gets a little bit crazy sometimes. And as much as I love Ken Ham, um, the group that has put this together... Um, releases not just the whole thing but also releases just a New Testament version that also then has Psalms and Proverbs you've seen that like Gideon's do the same thing well now they've done one that's the Psalms, Proverbs and the New Testament and just the book of Genesis and it's because of the importance of the book of Genesis um, in understanding the gospel and other things I love Ken Ham but I look at that going that's a little bit of, just put the whole thing together put the whole thing in there you know it doesn't take up a whole lot more extra space you know but um the, the Old Testament is extremely important because it gives us a foreshadowing. And we're going to see that today because the Abrahamic covenant actually foreshadows. The technical term is that it's a type, T-Y-P-E, of the new covenant that we have in Jesus Christ. So what I'm going to do today, oftentimes I give the takeaways, if you will, at each section. I'm going to save all the takeaways for the end. So hold tight. We'll get to that as we sort of wrap it up. But let's look at the first part here. The first six verses. God's covenant with Abraham was established with conditions. The first six verses. Now Abraham was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you and... You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Now for the first time in the Bible here, we see God refer to himself as God Almighty. The first part of that, L, is actually the word God, and then the second half is Shaddai, or Shaddai, depending on how you want to pronounce that. So you've got God followed by the second word, but there's not a whole lot known about the second word. What's called the etymology or the history or or that of the word, the origin isn't really known. But the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then something called the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation, referred to Shaddai as Almighty and translated it as Almighty. 
We're not really sure exactly what that means, but that word as we go through the scriptures, when we see that term for God, oftentimes it's related to his pros- the prosperity that comes through knowing him, through the blessings that he gives to people, also tied to fertility. And so it appears that what God is doing here in calling himself El Shaddai is reminding Abraham of the blessings, the prosperity, and the um, progeny that he'll receive as part of this new covenant. It may be a term that refers to God's sovereignty, that God can do whatever God promises he will do. And so he begins that way by saying, Now when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, I am the God Almighty, or I am God Almighty. I can do all things. Now immediately after announcing this name, God lays out some expectations or some conditions for Abram and his descendants as part of the covenant. Now there is a debate as to whether the Abrahamic covenant is conditional or unconditional. There are two types of conditions, or so we say, in the Old Testament. And they refer to those as conditional or unconditional. A conditional covenant is a covenant made that has conditions tied to it that if those conditions are violated or broken, then the blessings of that covenant don't flow. But there's conditions attached to it. There's what are called unconditional covenants, which is a promise God makes. There's no conditions at all assigned to it. God will just do it. A good example of an unconditional covenant would be the Noahic covenant. God simply says, I will never flood or destroy the earth again like this. There's no conditions. He doesn't say, well, you know, if, I won't do it. The if would be the conditions, right? So the Noahic covenant is one that is always referred to as an unconditional covenant. The Mosaic covenant, the law, is what's referred to as a conditional covenant. God basically says, do these things, obey, and you'll be blessed. You don't, you won't be. Do the things of the law, you'll get to stay in the land. Violate all that, you start worshiping idols, I'll kick you out of the land. So that's a conditional covenant. There's conditions assigned to receiving the blessings. And generally, people will take this Mosaic, or I'm sorry, this Abrahamic covenant, and they put it into that category of an unconditional covenant, meaning there were no conditions, no expectations placed upon Abraham. And the reason they do that is because it's first mentioned in Genesis chapter 12. The word covenant is not used there. But some of the promises God made are. And so that's the beginning of the covenant in Genesis chapter 12. God tells him, leave Ur, I'm going to make you into a great nation, I'm going to give you all this land. That's the beginning of that covenant. Even though the word isn't used there, that's the beginning of the process. You see things repeated in chapter 13, in chapter 14, and then even chapter 15. Now in chapter 15, which Dustin covered, there's the, the, for the first time the word covenant is used there, and God says that he's going to make a covenant with Abraham. But in my understanding... That's not the beginning of the covenant because what he promised in chapter 15 he'd already promised in chapters 12, 13, and 14. It's just that he happens to use that term. You might say that that's the formal initiation, if you will, or the initiating of the covenant. The legal terms I kind of liken it to, I tell my daughter I'm going to buy her a car. Okay? That's the beginning of the process, right? But we're still not at the dealership. Now we go to the dealership we start to sign the papers and we actually begin the process. I believe that chapter 15 is sort of the beginning of that process. That's the formal part of making that covenant. The, pr- 
problem with seeing it, though, as an unconditional covenant, and in that particular instance, you notice that there were no conditions put on Abraham. God doesn't say he's going to expect anything of Abraham in that chapter. In fact, remember the remember Miran's animals up here? It's only God who walked through those. Implying that he's only holding himself accountable, he's the one that that, that that covenant is based upon. And he'll do exactly what he says. And that's why most people would say, see, it's purely unconditional. The problem is we get to chapter 17 today and there are conditions and expectations laid out. We'll get to those in just a second. I'll tell you what those are as we work through it, but I want to first make the argument that these are truly conditions or expectations first. What's interesting about this is in chapter in verse 2, I'm sorry, in verse 1, he says, I am God Almighty, and he says, walk before me and be blameless. At the beginning of verse 2 in the New American Standard, there's a word that's not been translated there. There's a conjunction in the Hebrew text, and it's, and Matt will attend to this, it can be used in a, would you say a million different ways or a billion different ways? <laughs> Not quite. But there's a variety of ways that this particular conjunction will function. And what's interesting is that the New American Standard is the only one that doesn't translate it. Every other major English translation translates it. And most of the time they translate it as something what is called a causal conjunction. What I mean by that is this. So that, that, then. So, it might, say, might be translated something like, Walk before me and be blameless so that I will establish. Or that I will establish. Or then I will establish. And they treat it as a causal conjunction. What's interesting, you look at something that some translations have their translator notes. These are really cool. If you want to know why translators translated a specific Hebrew phrase or word or a Greek phrase or word the way they did, sometimes they release the notes. And New English translation translators provide those notes and tell you why they did what they did. The New Legacy Standard Edition from Master's Seminary. They have their translations notes, notes all available online now for free. You can go in and you can see why they do what they do. They can be very helpful. The NET translation notes actually talk about this and describe it as um, just that, a causal conjunction that gets to um, the results of something. Um, let me read to you what those notes say it may or may not mean something to you the cohortative in this case indicates consequence if Abraham is blameless now that doesn't mean perfect but if Abraham is blameless then the Lord will ratify the covenant with him that's from their translation notes that's why they treat it as a causal conjunction the cohortative they talk about there it's a big fancy Hebrew word Um, it's the word establish, confirm, make or set up what he says there um, the mood that's expressed there generally expresses consequence. So they treat that as a what's called a cohortative. All that fancy stuff to simply say this. When we get to this passage, the, the text itself suggests that these are conditions or expectations. That God is expecting something of Abraham so that he will make the covenant with Abraham. Um, there's other reasons why we would see this as a conditional covenant meaning there are expectations of Abraham there are conditions that Abraham must meet for God to do what God is going to do that comes through some other passages Genesis chapter 18 turn to Genesis chapter 18 verse 19 for me Genesis chapter 18 verse 19 
God says this, For I have chosen him, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. What? So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about to him. Did you catch that? Abraham should teach his children to obey so that the Lord will do what he's promised. Turn to chapter 22, verse 18. 22, verse 18. The Lord says to Abraham, In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have obeyed my voice. God ties Abraham's obedience to why all the nations will be blessed. How about Genesis chapter 26, verse 5? 26, verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Notice what he says in verse 4. I should have read that first. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. and will give your descendants all these lands. And by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because Abraham obeyed me. So for these reasons and for others, I believe that when we turn back to Genesis chapter 17, what God is about to reveal to Abraham are actual conditions, expectations. If you do these things, then I will do these things. Now, so which is it? Some are going to say they're conditional because in Genesis chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15, no conditions are mentioned. You get to Genesis chapter 17 and we get conditions mentioned. So which is it? Is it unconditional or is it conditional? I'm going to say yes. You like that? I'm going to say yes. Yeah, have some guts. Right? I've been told that a couple of times this week, actually, because I had some interaction with a gentleman in a eschatology forum who, to be real honest, he is acting like a pagan, foul language and everything else, condemning those who have a different opinion than him. And I finally spoke up and said, where are the moderators? This is supposed to be a civil discussion here. And he then let both barrels down on me and told me to grow a pair and to stand up and all kinds of other vulgar things. So... I'm used to that, Dustin. <laughs> you heard Dustin, he told me to, you know, stand up here. So, so which is it? No, it was not. It was not. You see, one of the problems with theology is we like things nice and tidy. We like to categorize everything, don't we? But what do we do with things like God's sovereignty versus man's free will? You know, I notice that there's a church sometimes we drive by on the way here, Free Will Baptist Church. It's because most Baptists would, would find themselves in the, in the camp of Calvinists who camp heavily on God's sovereignty. God elects everyone and God even elects some to hell. And it really has nothing to do with you. It's all about God's sovereignty. But then you have those on the other side who are like, no, 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 it's man's free will. And um, even to some degree, you get the, the, the furthest sides of that, which you get into what's called the openness of God, which is that God doesn't even know the future. Because in order for us to have free will, God can't know the future because he really doesn't know the choices we're going to make. And so he just reacts to everything we do. Right? So... That has caused a lot of tension. What is it? Is there God, is God sovereign or is man free will? The Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches both. How does that always fit? How does that work? Yes! It just does. 
And you can spend all day long wrapping your head with duct tape so it doesn't explode to try to figure out how to make it all work, but you're going to drive yourself crazy because the answer is yes. God is sovereign and He elects. Man has free will and we choose. And it just works. And it's the same thing with this, I believe. I believe that the Abrahamic covenant was both conditional and unconditional. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is there's a conditional nature to it that in order for individuals that are a part of that covenant to experience the blessings of the covenant, they have to meet these conditions. We see that with Israel throughout its history. When Israel disobeyed, what happened? God brought struggles on them, did he not? He didn't give them the blessings that he promised. In fact, he drove them out of the land, the land that he promised that they would inherit everlastingly. But individual generations didn't get to experience those things because they failed to meet the conditions. But on the unconditional part of it, God will ultimately fulfill all of his promises to Abraham. Regardless of what Israel does. Why? Because Israel will ultimately turn to him. We're told that in the scriptures. It lays it all out. One of the things we believe in as, dare I use the phrase, dispensational eschatology. You know, we believe that that God has worked with different people at different times in different ways, but always by grace. Always by grace. But Israel had promises we didn't receive, right? Different things at different times in different ways. But... We believe that God's promises to Israel will still be fulfilled. That's what the thousand year millennial reign of Christ is all about. He will come and take the throne of David, sit there for a thousand years and govern the nations just like he promised Israel. God will fulfill his promises to Abraham. There will be a remnant. Jews will return to him. The Old Testament promises it. The New Testament promises it. So in that respect... The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. How does that work? I'm not really sure, but it does. And so there's the conditional nature to it, which is that in order to receive the blessings as individuals and as a generation in Israel, you have to abide by those conditions. And if you do, you'll receive the promises. If you don't, maybe the next generation will. Because ultimately, God will accomplish what he promised. Now, does that make sense? Okay. Again, we don't know how that exactly works out, but it works out. And so, when we get to this, what do we find? What are the conditions that God laid out for Abraham as part of this covenant? The first one is found right there in verse 1. He says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Essentially, Walking before the Lord and being blameless, if I could give you a definition, it's the idea of being devoted to the Lord and to walk in faithful obedience to Him. The Scriptures never demands perfection out of us in order to be saved or in order to be in the right relationship with Him. In fact, we know that because even in the New Testament, John tells us that if you say you're sinless, what? Basically, you deceive yourself and you make God out to be a liar. Okay, Even the Apostle Paul as he describes his own struggle with sin after he got saved. He doesn't say that he's perfect in that respect. But what God does expect is that we walk before him blamelessly, meaning that we are totally, completely devoted to him. He's got our affections. He's got our love. He's got our commitment. Joshua chapter 22, verse 5, the Lord reminded 
Abraham's descendants of this, when they went into the land, he says this, Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. What is that? To love the Lord your God and to walk in His ways. To keep His commandments and to hold fast to Him. And serve Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. What does it mean to walk blamelessly before the Lord, at least from an Old Testament perspective? Loving the Lord with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. After God gave the law to Israel, all 600 and... How many? How many? 613. I've heard estimates from that to 6... I think it's 613, 614, somewhere in that neighborhood like Matt just shared. But after doing that, you can imagine Israel's eyes might have been all glazed over. And the Lord says, don't worry about it. Paraphrasing here. All this can be accomplished if you love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What did Jesus say? The two greatest commandments, loving the Lord and loving your neighbor, what? Accomplishes the whole entire law. Because it's devotion to him, commitment to him. And so the first condition that God places on Abraham is just that. Be fully, completely devoted to me, obey my commandments, walk before me, hold fast to me. That's what it means to be blameless. That's why David could be called a man after God's own heart, even after what he did. He was a murderer and an adulterer. But when confronted by Nathan, what did he do? He was crushed in his spirit, confessed the sin, had remorse, and was fully devoted to the Lord. And the Lord says, he's a man after my own heart. So that's the first condition. The second condition is found down in verses 10 and 11. I'm just going to read them, but we'll come back to these in a moment. But it's circumcision. That's the second condition of this covenant. Verses 10 through 11 says, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and your descendants. After you, every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So there are two covenants laid out here. One is to be devoted to him, to walk before him, to be blameless. The second is that they must keep the sign of circumcision. So we know what God expected of Abraham, but see, covenants are two ways. What could Abraham now expect of God? Well, that's also found here in the text. We know what God expects of Abraham. What can Abraham now expect of God? Well, he says in verse 2, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham then fell on his face. He talked to God and he said, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, which loosely means father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you. And then he adds something we haven't seen before, and kings will come from you. So Abraham now knows what he can expect of God. And so God says what he expects of Abraham. God now says, here's what you can expect of me. God would establish his covenant. He would multiply Abraham exceedingly. He'd become a father of nations. God even changed his name to represent that. He says, kings would come forth from you. So everything about this text so far suggests that there are conditions on this covenant that God expects of Abraham. You'll see where that plays into the new covenant a little bit later. Let's move on to the second section, verses 7 and 8. God's covenant with Abraham is that it was an everlasting one. So the first thing we've learned about covenants is there's conditions applied to the Abrahamic covenant. The second thing we learn is that Abraham's covenant with the Lord was an everlasting one, a never-ending one. Look at verses 7 through 8. 
I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and your descendants after you, I will give you or give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The word everlasting is used twice in these verses here. The Lord promised to be God to Abraham and his descendants throughout all of their generations for an everlasting covenant. It says in verse 7. Verse 8 it says for an everlasting possession. You go back, you don't have to turn here, but Genesis chapter 13 verse 15. God promised Abraham that he would give him and his offspring the land. He uses the word forever. That's essentially what the covenant was. It was an everlasting, a forever covenant that God made with Abraham and his descendants. Now we know that that is an earthly covenant, meaning as long as the earth is here, in the shape that it's here, that's what God's promise is. Ultimately, it comes to its fruition with the thousand-year reign of Christ. Because after that, God makes a new heavens and a new earth. And in that respect, it's even eternal to some degree. Because not only Israel, but the church grafted into Israel will get to experience the land forever. It's a misnomer to think that we spend eternity in heaven. We don't. We spend eternity here on a new heavens and a new earth. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4 with me. Some argue that the covenant with Abraham is no longer in effect, that the church has replaced Israel. But that's not true. God still, and Paul makes this clear in the book of Romans, God's not done with Israel yet. It may not be the Israelites in the land currently today, but God is not done with Israel yet. Genesis, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter four, verses twenty-five and following. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God as you provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land. Why? They didn't meet the conditions. Where you are going over the Jordan to possess it, you shall not live long on it, but it will be utterly, or you will be, um, but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the people, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. So we see the cover, or the uh, conditional nature there. There you will serve gods in the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat or smell. But from there, what? You will seek the Lord your God, and you will find Him if you search for Him with all your heart, with all your soul. When you are in distress and these things come upon you in the later days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to His voice. For the Lord your God is compassionate, God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers which He swore to them. I'll let you read the rest of that, but essentially what we find here is that God's covenant with Abraham Abraham is everlasting. And we see here there's the two sides again of that covenant or that that conditional and unconditional nature. He says, Look, when you get in the land and you do this stuff, you won't be there long. I'll boot you out. But guess what? When I do that, your hearts will still be turned back to me. You will seek me and you will find me. Why? Because I'm compassionate. And I will fulfill my promises to your father Abraham. Why? Because God promised him an everlasting covenant. Hosea told us this would happen in the last days. Hosea chapter 3 verse 5. Afterwards the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and they will come trembling to the Lord 
into his goodness when in the last days. Revelation 20 describes that. As it describes the thousand year reign of Christ. So, the covenant with Abraham was an everlasting one. How about the third thing? Verses 9 through 14. God's covenant with Abraham was confirmed with what I'm going to call a perpetual sign. Perpetual meaning something that's going to be repeated. Look at verses 9 through 14. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generation. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. Why? Because he didn't meet the condition of circumcision. He has broken my covenant. So what we find here is that God gives Abraham now a sign, sort of a seal, something that would represent and remind them of the covenant that they had with God, and that sign was circumcision. And it's something that had to be performed on every single male in his household. Not just his children, not just servants, but foreigners that might stay with him. Anybody in the household had to be circumcised. Why? It's part of the sign. And if they refused circumcision, they were to be booted out. Because it was a condition. But it also served as a sign. We're going to see in a minute, Jesus did something similar for us. Gave us a sign to remember the new covenant. We'll get to that in just a moment. So the third thing is that Abraham's covenant with God was confirmed with this perpetual sign. Something that would be repeated from generation to generation to generation. So that you might remember that. The fourth thing is that the covenant with Abraham was dependent on the supernatural and sovereign work of God. It was dependent on the supernatural and sovereign work of God. Look at verses 15 through 22. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall call her name, or you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. King of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I will bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. So like he had done with Abram, God gave Sarai a new name, calls her Sarah. Um, Abraham's name... Uh, the change seemed to be to represent that he'd be the father of a multitude. We're not sure about 
Sarai's name here, both of the words simply refer to being a princess. I don't know if there's any theological importance to changing from Sarai to Sarah like there was with Abram. Um, But he changes her name. One part of that may simply be to represent the future for Sarah. That name change coming along with this promise that she would also bear Abram's children is probably somewhat significant. Changing names in the Old Testament and even the New has a tendency to do that. When Jesus renamed Peter. Why? Because of Peter's new role. Um, Paul even changed his own name. Some say that was probably a former name that he had, but instead of going by Saul, he started going by Paul after his conversion. Not immediately, but shortly thereafter. Maybe for that reason. To identify, I have a new life along with my new name. One of the things that stands out in this verse is that the fulfillment of the covenant would require a supernatural and sovereign act of God. Did you really catch that? In order for this to be fulfilled, in order for God to do what he's going to do, he would have to act supernaturally. We know that because 15 years earlier, Abraham and Sarah attempted to fulfill God's promise because Sarah couldn't have children of her own. God had closed up her womb. That was 15 years prior to this. Do you think she now just automatically, oh, you know, guess what, I can have babies again. No. In fact, the scriptures tell us that she was well past the age of bearing children. But yet, at least five times in this passage, what do we always say about repetition in the scriptures? Somebody's trying to make a point. At least five times in these five verses here, we're told that it's going to be Sarah through whom God is going to fulfill the promise. But Sarah can't have kids because her womb is closed up. Now, we know that Abraham lived 175 years. He can, you know, even guys can still make babies, right? Late in life. Most women can't. You reach an age where you just can't do it anymore. And even by their standards back then, at 90 years old, Sarah was well past the ability to have kids. And yet... God says what? I'll give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall be the mother of nations. Kings and people will be born from her. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. Sarah will bear to you a son. I mean, it's repeated at least five times in this passage. Why? Maybe because Abram was a little, you know, 15 years earlier, he kind of thought, you know, nah, do it through Ishmael. What does he do in this passage here? Do you kind of notice? He's a little deal maker, you know? What does he do? He laughs. Oh, come on, Lord. It's not possible. Well, he's right. It's not. So he laughs. Come on, God. I already got Ishmael here. Well, that didn't work the first time. It's not going to work the second time. Because the Lord says, no, I'll bless Ishmael. He's your descendant. I'll bless him too. I'll make him a great nation, 12 princes. But that's not what we're talking about here, Abraham. We're talking about the covenant I cut with you. It's going to be through Isaac, your son. It's going to all come through Sarah. That's the way this is going to work. Meaning that God was going to have to do a supernatural act. Genesis 18.11 tells us that Sarah was past childbearing. Genesis 21.2 says that Sarah conceived and bore a son in Abraham in her old age. At the appointed time, which is a description of, it's when God wanted it and caused it to happen. It was his appointed time. Had nothing to do with her biology. Had to do with God's appointed time. 
Hebrews chapter 11 verse 11 says, By faith even Sarah conceived, receiving the ability to conceive. Receiving the ability to conceive well past her ability to conceive naturally. So the covenant was dependent on God's supernatural, sovereign work. What about the fifth thing we might learn from this about Abraham's covenant with God? God's covenant with Abraham was responded to by Abraham in faith. Faith was a necessary element of this covenant. Look at verses 23 through 27. But Abraham took Ishmael his son and the servant and all the servants who were born in his house and all who were brought with his, bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. All the men of his household who were born in the house and bought or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. When God first saw Abraham in Ur, he responded by faith in leaving his home and going to a place that says that he didn't know. We've seen him exercise faith throughout this. He's had some stumbling blocks. He's had some things that he hasn't always done right or done well, but ultimately we see him respond in faith. We see the same faith here expressed through his obedience because immediately after God is done, he goes and he carries this out. We've got how much repetition here? You notice how many times it tells us he was circumcised and his family here? Um, it even says, in the very same day, it says that he did it. Just as God said to him is a reference to his obedience. Um, there's this constant repetition here. Count of the time circumcision, the number of times it says that he was circum- that you know circumcision is carried out here. Again, repetition tells us there's an emphasis here. Abraham did exactly what God told him to do. He didn't hesitate, and he did it. According to Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham's obedience was actually a demonstration of faith. And that's why I've looked at this section and I've said this really here. It's not just about obedience. It's about faith. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 with me. Hebrews chapter 11. Jump down into verse 8. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out of the place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived in an alien land of promise, as a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which was which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. You jump all the way down into um, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. What you notice is that in Hebrews 11 here, it tells us that Abraham's act of obedience was tied to faith. 
Which means it wasn't just this legalistic do it. It was tied to faith and faith in the promises that God had made to him. And so the way that Abraham responded to God's covenant with him was not just through obedience, but ultimately through faith and trust. That God would do everything that he said. So, how does this fit into the new covenant? I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Here's our takeaways today. Luke chapter 22. Jump down to verse 20. We'll back up a little bit here. This is the Last Supper, verse 14. When the hour had come, he received, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and had given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup, and after eating, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of one betraying me is with me at the table. What did Jesus do there? He initiated a new covenant with us, with his followers. The sign of that is what? According to Luke chapter 22 here, the sign of this new covenant, what is to be repeated, is the bread and the cup. The reason we celebrate the bread and the cup is because it is to be the perpetual sign of the new covenant we have in Jesus Christ that was established as a result of his blood on the cross. You don't have to turn here, but Ezekiel chapter 36 actually describes this in the Old Testament telling us that a time would come where God would pour out his spirit into the hearts of men and women. And that's exactly what we see with the new covenant. So the new covenant was promised in the Old Testament. Again, you can turn to Ezekiel chapter 36, starting around verse 26 or so. So, I'm going to go back down through these five things we learned about the Abrahamic covenant. And you'll see how that connects with this new covenant. Just as the Abrahamic covenant was established with conditions, so was the new covenant. The conditions of the Abrahamic covenant were essentially devotion and obedience. The conditions of the new covenant are similar in that Jesus called us to love and to obey him as part of this new covenant. John chapter 14 verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now, I'm going to be very careful here. I am not saying that we gain our salvation through works. Because remember, with Abraham, Abraham was declared righteous. Why? By faith. We are too. But even with that, what did God expect of Abraham? Walk before me and be blameless. What are we told by Jesus? Walk before me. Be devoted to me. Love me with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. So there are conditions. We are expected to walk in obedience. Those Christians that say, I get saved and don't have to worry about it, that theologically is kind of true, meaning if you genuinely place your faith in Jesus Christ, God will save you to the uttermost. 
Nothing can take us out of His hand. But if we are nonchalant about it, He also says He'll chastise us. Heck, we've got some Corinthians who He took their lives because of their sin. And so there are conditions. There is an expectation that we walk a certain way. We're told that we will be known by our fruit. So, again, there's that fine line sometimes. I'm not, again, saying that if we violate the conditions here that we won't be saved or we'll lose our salvation. I believe, again, that God saves and He saves. But, now that we've become a part of this new covenant, the expectation is that we will walk in obedience. And if we expect to receive the blessings of that, whether it's here or whether it's in the future, we need to walk in a way that demonstrates our love, obedience, and faithfulness to Christ. Again, I'm not saying you'd lose your salvation, but we are told that there are rewards that wait for us, and those are part of the promises of the new covenant. We'll be judged according to our deeds, and and even as Christians, the Lord will weigh what we've done. So, there are conditions on this new covenant. Again, they're not tied specifically to obedience, or to security, but there is an expectation just as the Abrahamic covenant was everlasting that's true of the new covenant too isn't it there's a long list of blessings and promises that we receive as part of our faith in Jesus Christ in the new covenant but the greatest one is eternal life John wrote this is the promise which he himself made to us eternal life Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 15 says how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleansing your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgression that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an an eternal and everlasting inheritance. What we receive as a part of the new covenant is eternal life. So our covenant, this new covenant, is also eternal or everlasting, I'll say, just like the Abrahamic covenant foreshadowed for the Jews. Just as the Abrahamic covenant was confirmed with a perpetual sign, so is the new covenant. Abraham was expected to continue the sign of circumcision as a demonstration, as a reminder of the covenant between him and his descendants and the Lord. Jesus, we already saw this in Luke chapter 22, he said that we should repeat the bread and the cup. Why? As a remembrance. It's the sign that was given to us that we are to continue participating in the bread and the cup. You know, it's funny because, um, I'll say this crudely, you could tell a Jew because he was circumcised. At least physically, I'll just say. Right? We do something that the world doesn't do in the bread and the cup we're the only ones that do it is the church now you have within that church you've got obviously some are saved and some are not but I'm saying just functionally from a standpoint when we come together and we celebrate the bread and the cup it's meaningful to us it reminds us of what Christ did it reminds us of the new covenant that we have in him the world doesn't have that just as the Abrahamic covenant was dependent on the supernatural and sovereign work of God Isn't that true of the New Covenant as well? God's promise to Abraham um, required that he act supernaturally on their behalf by opening up Sarah's womb and giving Abraham descendants through Sarah. 
Likewise, there would be no new covenant if God did not send His Son supernaturally. At the appointed time, we're told in the Scriptures, to supernaturally be born of a woman who had not had relations with a man. He would suffer, be crucified, and then supernaturally raised from the dead. So you see all the supernatural elements of that new covenant. And that's even before it gets to us. If you think about it, even as we enter into that new covenant, there's supernatural work that takes place. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we become new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. He takes that old man and crucifies it, we're told. John chapter 3, we're told that we must be born again or born anew, born afresh. There is a supernatural work that takes place in us. God takes His Holy Spirit and places that Holy Spirit within us. The scriptures say that we become partakers of the divine nature. All of this is supernatural. And so just as the Abrahamic covenant was required supernatural work of God, so does our new covenant. The last point is that just as the Abrahamic covenant was responded to in faith, how do we enter into our new covenant with Christ? We're told that it's by faith. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by the conditions. We're saved by grace. Purely by grace. Turn to Romans chapter 5 and we'll close with this. Romans chapter 5. Just two verses. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into His grace in which we stand and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Our entrance into God's grace, our introduction to God's grace, our part in the new covenant is purely by faith. It's a result of God's grace and our faith. Again, I'm fascinated by when we see things like this in the Old Testament. It's a tutor to lead us to Christ. And it's neat to see how God's covenant with Abraham, I don't believe it was coincidental. I believe that God did what he did with Abraham to foreshadow what he would do with the new covenant. Like I said, it's even prophesied in the Old Testament. And so what we see in Abraham is... God's relationship with him and the conditions and the nature of it, the supernatural nature and everything else, the everlasting nature of it. And those things are true with us as well because the Abrahamic covenant was a type or a foreshadowing of the new covenant that we now have in Jesus Christ. Amen?